This is an exciting day to be here um, before uh, we celebrate um, Christmas Day, Christmas Eve, Christmas Day. It's an exciting day to be able to take one last focus, one last dive into the Word of God, one last look into um, what He has to say for us. I will tell you, throughout much of my life, I thought two things about Christmas services. Number one, I thought that they were annoying because they got in the way of the Christmas part that I love the most. Um, and which, you know, presents and family and presents and stuff like that. But number two, um, I thought the Christmas music was dumb. I always thought it was dumb. Like, I don't know why. As a kid, I just thought, Hark the Herald Angels Sing and... Uh, oh, come all ye faithful. I just like, this, these songs, can we just sing something that we normally sing? And then when I, when I realized that I was the dumb one, and I started looking at the lyrics to these songs, I realized that some of the richest songs that we have in all of Christendom are found in the celebration of the advent of Jesus Christ. Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace. Hail the Son of Righteousness. Light and life to all he brings, risen and healing in his wings. Mild he lays by, uh, lays his glory by, born that man no more may die. Born to raise the son of earth, born to give them second birth. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. Listen, hark the herald angels sing has like the gospel repeated in every verse. <laughs> it's incredible. It's incredible. And as we mature in the things that we love, we mature to know that, man, there's no, there's no place I would rather be on the last Sunday before Christmas than with my people worshiping the Lord, going through His Word. And there's no songs that I'd rather sing during this time than songs that are deep and rich and wonderful and celebrate the Advent. She, she's excited too. Celebrate the Advent of Jesus Christ. Uh, today we're going to light the Advent candles. And I'm going to light two today. Uh, I'll read these just to give you a reminder. There's four candles for the four, the four surrounding candles are for the four Sundays before Christmas Day, each one representing promise, light, love, and hope. The three purple candles represent the royalty of Jesus as the Son of God and the King of Kings. The one pink candle represents the joy of having Jesus in your heart. I'm going to light two candles today. One is the center candle. That is the white candle, and that represents the Christ. That's the Christ candle. Because everything around here, promise, light, love, and hope, is centered on the fact that Christ came, and He is, and what He was and is, exactly who He says He is. And then we'll light the, fir- the last purple candle. The last purple candle that symbolizes the hope on earth and hope for heaven. Would you pray with me this morning as we start? God, speak to us through your word. Help us to cherish your word as, as we cherish water, as we cherish food. Help us to seek after it for nourishment for hope, for encouragement, for a future, to look at the promises you've given us. 
for Christ. Lord, we give you today, we give you every day. Lord, help this Advent season to be so special if only because we focus our attention on the reason we celebrate. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. It's truly been a wonderful Advent season. We've, we have taken some concerted looks into the history of redemption that has led us to why we celebrate the Advent in the first place. Why the Advent of God, the coming of God is so special. What we have find, what we have found, excuse me, is how important the understanding of the Old Testament is as it pertains to understanding the New Testament, right? From the Passover, which was our first week in the Advent series, to King David, to the stories of redemption throughout the text. We don't properly appreciate and properly understand the advent of Jesus unless we properly understand the text of the Old Testament. One pastor put it so aptly, and I'm going to steal it and use it. This is the one time I'll give him credit, and not by name, just by saying somebody else who did it. The worst page in the Bible is the blank page between the Old and the New Testaments, because the page can lead us to believe that the content is separate, when in fact you cannot see one properly without the other. With that said, I want to read a text that will sort of reel in the Old Testament with the New. This is not probably the text that you came expecting the last Christmas before, or the last Sunday before Christmas, but it is the text we will read nonetheless. Matthew 1 today, follow along with me. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Perez and Zerah, and by Tamar, excuse me, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram. And Ram, the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon. If you're eating it, it's salmon. If you're talking about the human, it's salmon. And Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. Can you feel the Spirit moving? 
And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Akim, and Akim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathen, and Mathen the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were fourteen generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to Christ, 14 generations. I know that that is like the introduction you were expecting to the last special sermon in the Advent series. But I hope to change your mind about passing over the genealogy next time you read through Matthew because you know, I'm not going to do a show of hands, but you know you've all done it. You've been like, all right, we're good. 17, all right? Verse 18. What does verse 18 say? Oh, no, 17 is good. I can start with that. We come to the Gospel of Matthew and we get our first exposure to the New Testament. We are poised to have an attention grabber, right? And in the first chapter, we get the genealogy of Jesus. It probably wasn't what most of us would expect. Let me give us a few examples of what we would expect if we want to grab and keep the attention. Listen to this and see if you know where it comes from. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. Where does that come from? A tale of two cities. Close. A tale of two cities. Or what about this? It was a period of civil war. Rebel spaceships striking from a hidden base have won their first victory against the evil galactic empire. During the battle, rebel spies managed to steal secret plans to the empire's ultimate weapon, the Death Star, an armored space station with enough power to destroy the entire planet. Pursued by the Empire's sinister agents, Princess Leia races home aboard her starship, custodian of the stolen plans that can save her people and restore freedom to the galaxy. Wrong. Spaceballs. <laughs> not Spaceballs. It's not Empire Strikes Back. <laughs> Star Wars A New Hope. Right? Even You don't have to be that big of a nerd to get that. Evidently you do. Or how about this? How about this from John Mark? The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send a messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of the one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. That's how Mark started off his gospel. If this is going to be the first gospel to announce the coming of the Messiah, you might expect something more than just the lineage of the Messiah. Here's what I've concluded after coming and studying these two texts. That if we open our hearts and our minds and see what the texts are really saying, see what we can really find from the text. The lineage of Jesus, the genealogy of Jesus gives us a better understanding of the story than the beginning of Star Wars or the beginning of a tale of two cities. This passage might be one that we pass over in our studies or our sermons because of the content, but I am convinced that the first part of chapter 1 in Matthew is drastically important for us to understand the story 
of the Messiah. The genealogy is completely necessary for, for us to know about and to understand the story of the redemption of mankind. Now there are two appearances of the genealogy of Jesus and they both seem a little different. There is one in Matthew that we will look at today and then there's another in Luke. Luke starts with Joseph and goes back to Adam. Matthew starts with Abraham and goes to Christ. And the list of names after David and up to David, so from David to Jesus in both, seem starkly different. Now there are a few reasons for this. And I want to give you these so that if you have questions about this or if you ever need to answer a question about this, you'll be able to. And then we'll get into sort of the heart of the sermon. There are two main beliefs. The first is that Matthew's lineage is more of a legal sense. That his audience was Jewish, so Matthew would have, he would be proving who the heirs were to King David along the way and not pointing to every single person in the lineage. In contrast, Luke was speaking to a Gentile audience, so he might have not done so much of the lineage, but he might have done that he might have done it just more like we do ours. Like this was his grandfather and his great grandfather and his great great grandfather, as opposed to this was the heir, this was the heir, this was the heir. You know, skipping a grandfather. Uh, a grandfather was the king, and so the son might not have been the king. His son might have been the king. If you understand what I'm saying there. So Luke is speaking to a Gentile audience. So Matthew, Matthew's list would have been more selective with a specific purpose, and that would have been getting from David to Jesus. And truthfully, up until 70 AD, the Jewish people had the ability to go into the temple, go into the archives, and, ex- and look and see if Matthew was right. They could have checked to see. They were sticklers as far as as it was in keeping history, but specifically lineage, and specifically lineage that came along royal lines. So they would have been able to, at any point up until the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, they would have been able to verify the lineage that Luke is is, uh, um, speaking here right now. Whereas Luke's, uh, Matthew's would have been more selective, more specific in purpose. Luke's would have been longer. It would have been an unfolding list that really tells of the unfolding story of Jesus into the world. There's another view, and um, I think holding either view to these would be okay, and I don't think that anybody knows for sure. There's another view, and... Uh, the other view is, is probably more common, and it's that the genealogies of Matthew and Luke are different. Many people believe, many scholars believe, that the one in Luke is for Mary, and the one in Matthew is for Joseph. There are many reasons that people believe this, that one is for Joseph and not just the one in Luke is for like is a weird one of Joseph, but it's for Mary. The, the reason that many people believe that one is for Joseph and one is for Mary is because um, Lu, uh, Matthew mentions Jeconiah in the lineage, and this is just some extraneous details, but they're helpful. Um, Matthew mentions Jeconiah. Jeconiah was cursed by Jeremiah and was told that he would never have anybody along his lineage. So Joseph, naturally, Jesus was not Joseph's natural-born son. Joseph would not have had a uh, person in his lineage to take on the throne because Joseph was from, was, had Jeconiah in his line, in his lineage. So um, it would have been more acceptable if the one in Matthew had been Joseph's lineage. This is why in Luke we see that Jesus was the son of Joseph as was supposed the son of Heli, 
Um, I don't know, Heli, Heli, however you say that. It's probably Heli. Um, Heli was Mary's dad. And um, what is believed here is being said is that not Joseph was the son of Heli, but that Joseph, Jesus was not Joseph's natural born son, so that it sort of, it, the lineage skipped to the next man along the line. And that was Mary's father. So, but it says, as was supposed, Jesus was Joseph's son in every way because he was adopted. Uh, he had all the rights of son, all the rights of sonship of Joseph. So Luke is likely mentioning, very possible that Luke is mentioning Mary's lineage back to David. So what is the significance of the genealogy? I mean, here's the deal on a lot of these things. If I can't make sense of it, and it's not just totally debasing the gospel, it's not totally destroying the gospel, which nothing in the Bible does. If I can't make sense of it, I do my best to understand it. And then if I can't come to a final conclusion, I say, it is what it is, let's move on. And that's what I say with this. It could be one of those other two things, but there is some very important uh, there are very important aspects of the, line- the lineage, the genealogy of Jesus that I want us to see today. I'm going to give you two things that I want you to take home, and then I'm going to give you some practical things that you can take with you also uh, at the end. The first is this. Jesus was a real historical figure who came in a real moment in time, so his advent has historical significance. His advent has historical significance. If anything, the genealogy that we see offers us this truth, that Jesus came within the chronos of time, a moment, a second, a minute in time. Jesus, like Joseph, like David, like Abraham, is a real historical figure. He is as real as John Lennon or Elvis or Martin Luther King or George Washington. For around 40 years, people could touch, I mean, 30 30-something years, people could touch him. They could hear him audibly. They could smell him. They could communicate with him. And they could be in the physical, his physical presence on earth. The genealogy shows us something that faith and logic and history, even extra-biblical, have already told us. That Jesus was a real human being at a real moment in time. Now, Matthew does this not only by pointing to real, verifiable people, but by placing Jesus in a lineage that at the time would have also been verifiable. What I mean is this. There have been archaeological finds of many of the people in this lineage that we see in Matthew. Jeconiah is one of those people. It says that Jeconiah was the king, or Jeconiah was ruler before the Babylonian exile, right? Jeconiah ruled for Three months and ten days at the age of 18, probably 18 or 8, one of the two. He ruled for three months and ten days. Jeconiah was the king that was cursed by Jeremiah. But there is, in Babylonian, there have been archaeological, Babylonian archaeological finds that have proven that Jeconiah was a ruler and a leader of that time. Real historical figures within real time. These are not the only things. We found historical figures of many of the people, or historical archaeological finds of many of the people on this list. So not only does it place Jesus in a a real time in history, but it places him amongst real historical figures. But also this, and I mentioned it earlier, the Jewish people would have been able to verify this lineage easily. There was a census at the birth of Jesus. That is why they went to Bethlehem, right? 
they were keeping record of people. That was one of the main reasons. They, that was the main reason for tax purposes, of course, but they were keeping a record of people. There were strict records kept, and they could have checked. They could have verified. The scribes and the Pharisees could have gone down the street in Jerusalem and could have verified that Matthew was saying the truth. So just like the people of that time that read what Matthew said, we too have to decide what to do with what we know. If Jesus was a true, verifiable figure in the history of the world, verified by Jewish historians, by Christian historians, by the Bible, which should be enough, by logic, if he was a real, verifiable figure, we have to figure out what to do with him. Now, you've heard me say this before. Jesus must have been one of three things. He must have been a liar. He had to, if, if he was true, if he lived, if he existed, he had to be one of three things. He had to either be a liar, where ten of his eleven faithful disciples were willing to die for their faith, and subsequently many others who had firsthand knowledge of Jesus. He could have been a liar where other people were willing to die for a lie. He could have been a lunatic. He could have been crazy. And his disciples were either crazy along with him and then the thousands of others that came along after that were crazy along with him or they were normal people who were willing to die for a crazy person. Now there have been crazy people or normal seemingly people who have died for crazy people or they were normal at one time and they got into a mix. You know, we've had, I was watching some documentary on Netflix and it talked about, you know, it mentioned in multiple times the different, like, cults and, you know, the uh, one that y'all have watched, the David Koresh, the, what were they called? There's women and children in here. Uh, the David Koresh people, I can't think of what they're called now, Branch Davidians. And then there were the people in Guyana, uh, South America. And then, um, so you have all these people who are willing to die for somebody crazy. But where are their followers now? Where are their followers now? They're dead. They don't exist. The death of following a crazy person, guess what it does? It stops the craziness, at least for that sect of people. The death of following the Lord of the universe, death after following the Lord of the universe to his death, only intensifies and enunciates what he was trying to do in the first place. So he could have been a liar, unlikely. He could have been a lunatic, very unlikely. Or, or he's Lord. And he, as the Bible shows us for the Old Testament and what he did in the New Testament, he fulfilled over 300 prophecies. Not impossible, but infinitely improbable. To fulfill over 300 prophecies. And he died and he rose. And he offers salvation for all who sits. Who, who stay with him. And he sits at the right hand of the father and waiting to return. We can believe he's a liar. We can believe he's a lunatic. We can believe he's Lord. But we can't believe he didn't exist. It's not possible. It's not possible. Placing Jesus in actual history is important because you can't just dismiss him. We have to deal with him. We have to do something with Jesus. There's another point that I want you to I want to make, then I'll take some sort of practical steps away from this. Jesus was the fulfillment of the prophecies of old, so his advent has a spiritual significance. He was not just a historical figure, folks. 
but he was also the spiritual redeemer of all those who would believe. I want to point out to you just a small amount of spiritual significance of the advent through this genealogy. The first is this. His genealogy points to the universal nature of the gospel. Matthew goes back to Abraham and he points to the line of Jesus, right? His genealogy points to the, universe, the universal nature of the gospel. Matthew goes to Abraham and he points to Jesus. But what did Jesus say to, the, uh, to, a, uh, to Moses in the burning bush? He said, before Abraham was, I am. And Luke goes all the way back to Adam. But from the verse that uh, Stephen read this morning, John 1, we know that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. <coughs> and then John 1.14 says, And we beheld His glory as the only begotten Son of God, full of grace and truth. Jesus was the Word. Luke goes back to Adam, but Jesus says, I was before Adam. Colossians 1, 15-20 says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything, that in everything, He might be preeminent. That means first. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things whether on earth or in heaven making peace by the blood of his cross. Hebrews 1, 1 through 2. Long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom all, excuse me, through whom all also he created the world. If we accept that Jesus is this historical figure and that he must be true, then he cannot lie to himself and he must be true to himself. That he is who he says he is and who the scriptures say he is, then we must accept that he is all the things that I just read and more. The universality of the gospel then is just this. That the advent of Jesus was bigger than just a baby being born in a manger. It was bigger than wise men and shepherds and stars. The advent was the culmination of the holistic and full plan that God had before creation. A plan to redeem and make right His people. That the birth of Jesus is not just an isolated event in history, but the peace de resistance of God's universal plan for redemption of His elect. What a wonderful plan. What a wonderful thought. That God's, that the birth of God's Son was not just a one-off. It was not just an isolated event, but it was God's plan for the beginning of the redemption of mankind once and for all. His genealogy shows us that there's a universal, there's a, there is an, like this overarching meta-narrative something else that we must see that is related. 
the genealogy shows us that, th- shows us that this plan was fulfilled with an actual human for actual humans. This plan was fulfilled with an actual human for actual humans. God could have sent his son like we imagine Thor, right? The God of Thunder or another Marvel character with bare-chested, with arms poking out like Chris Hemsworth, just looking like a stud, but he's a God and he's different and he's separate. God could have sent his son like that. He could have sent his son so that we would definitively know when we saw Thor's hammer flying through the earth and we saw all these aliens come through and crash and tear everything up, that God must have arrived. He could have, but he didn't. The Bible says in Philippians 2 that he sent his son into who was in the form of God, who existed in the form of God that's eternally existed as God. He sent his son and he put him in the likeness of mankind, the form of man. He doesn't come like a superhero. He comes humbly as a man. Because it was needed for man to die for mankind. Man had to save mankind. But it shows us not only that man had to save mankind, but we are a part of the plan. We are not just the we are not just the save ease. We are a part of the plan. That the plan had always been to use mankind from everywhere to lift up His holy name. Jesus being the perfect example of what that looks like has given us an example to follow so that we can live our lives in such a way. God used a human to save the world. And He still uses normal humans to do that today. Even though it feels like sometimes that the work of Jesus must be done with superhero-like people. I mean, at least um, Black Widow or um, Hawkeye. You know, the little lesser ones. The lesser ones. At least those guys. It seems like the work of Jesus has to be done with those type people. It's just not true. It's just not true. The work of Jesus was done by a man for man for all of mankind to see through the rest of mankind. Friends, Jesus died not only to save you, but Jesus died to prove to you that men and women on this earth are important in the redemption story for the rest of the world. There's another thing I want you to see that's related. The genealogy shows us that the plan was fulfilled with broken people. With broken people. Not just normal, everyday people, but broken people. You want to talk about a broken family tree? You thought yours was messed up? You thought holidays were really bad for you? You want to talk about a broken family tree? Let's start with Abraham. Abraham lacked faith in God, and what did he do? He took his servant to have a baby with his servant. Right? We know the story of uh, Ishmael. Almost... Almost couldn't think of his name, so maybe we don't very well. We know the story of Ishmael, Abraham's lack of faith in God. Or we could look at Tamar. Do you know the story of Tamar? Tamar dressed as a prostitute to entice her father-in-law into having children. When that was bad, 
But what was also bad was her brother-in-laws, after her husband died, her brother-in-laws did not take on the God-given responsibility of redeeming their sister-in-law. They passed it along. And, and then the father-in-law didn't take it. So Tamar felt like instead of living by faith, she, which was wrong again, she took the actions into her own hands. So she, in this lineage, she gave birth to twins from her father-in-law. Rahab was a harlot and a Canaanite. Ruth was a Moabitess. She was from another tri- another, gr- another people group. Unclean blood. She was not a part of God's real people. David was the father of Solomon. Do you know how Solomon's mom is mentioned here? How is Solomon's mom mentioned here? It's not Bathsheba. He didn't say the father of Solomon from Bathsheba. It says the father of Solomon from the wife of Uriah. Matthew won't, Matthew won't even say Bathsheba because Matthew knows that what they did, what they did was a broken thing. And they want to point to the fact that Bathsheba was married to someone else. They're, you think your family tree is bad. You think your holidays are bad. I wonder what the in-laws of Uriah thought around holiday time. Then there's Jeconiah, which I mentioned earlier. He was cursed by Jeremiah. He was king for three months and ten days. You know what this genealogy tells me? That God uses sketchy people with a checkered past to accomplish his will, just like he uses those who are a little less sketch. That the same God who redeemed the Ninevites and Zacchaeus and the tax collectors and the prostitutes, the same God that healed the blind and the poor and the beggar, those who were forgotten, those who were downtrodden, the same God who heals and uses those people, uses sketchy and everyday checkered past people in our time today. Now the beautiful part of the gospel is this. He doesn't Now even though their past is still their past and it's still there, he doesn't leave them sketch. He doesn't leave them checkered. He stands them up, he cleans them up, and like the story of the prodigal son, he puts on the purple robe, he puts on the 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 ring and he places them in the place of honor. They don't live like they were eating out of the pig trough anymore. They don't live, you know, the, remember the beautiful story of the prodigal son? The prodigal son just wanted to be back in the presence of the father, and he was willing, it was better to be a servant in his father's house than a servant anywhere else. And he came home to the father, and the father said, look, you've got a sketch past, you've taken my money, you've taken advantage of me, but friend, you need to know this, I'm not going to see you as a servant, I'm going to bring you back, and I'm going to see you as a son. A son. And this is what the story of the redemption of mankind tells us. Even though we are sketch, God is above that and beyond that. And He's ready to redeem us and change us and renew us and make us into the image of Jesus. He doesn't leave us sketch. He doesn't leave us checkered. He cleans us up and He makes us more like Him. You think the people that are mentioned in the line of Jesus, you think some of those ones we know, Rahab? You think Ruth? 
You think those people, you think those people were forgotten by God in eternity? Not a chance. Not a chance. Then another thing, and this might not be as big to you, but it's big to me. The genealogy shows us that God's plan is filled and fulfilled with unsuspecting people. Women. Women are mentioned in the genealogies. That's, that's not heard of. That's, that was not what happened. That's not what happened. It was always, in these specific and strict records, it was always men. Or mostly, I think. I haven't read every record of Jewish genealogy, so I don't know. But mostly men. Women, it didn't happen that they were mentioned. And yet, God puts them in a preeminent position. People of different ethnic backgrounds. The greatest king in all of history, likely David, was a shepherd before he became king. The people that the world puts little faith in, God puts the hope of the world in. The people that the world say, he's meager, he's nothing, not much to look at, not much to hope in, that we esteem him not, God puts him at the forefront. So here are some things that I've learned from the genealogy, and I hope you have too. These are just some practical things to take home today. God deals with actual people. God deals with actual people. Do you know what Stepford Wives is? Stepford Wives was a show, or it's a book from the 70s, and then they turned it into a show where basically they, these men, I mean, this sounds like the ideal world, but these men were, just, <laughs> just kidding. These men create. <laughs> Just kidding. These men created these robotic type women that did exactly what they were there for their ever beckon and call. And, and they created meals and blah, blah, blah. You know, all of it. It was just perfect living. But it's not reality, right? God uses real people with real problems, with worries, with fears. Not genetically created perfect replicas, but works in progress. Do you know why? We have works in progress because he also created this wonderful thing called grace. And grace is something that is handed down to us every day, every one of us. He creates, in, he creates real humans who need real grace. Have I ever told you how Anna and I started talking? I posted on Facebook years and years ago before people really, you know, got back reconnected on Facebook. We were friends before this. Uh, loosely, acquaintances. Um, and I posted on Facebook, he's still working on me to make me what I ought to be. And she put, I love that song, and I immediately thought she was flirting with me and wanted to be, you know, my, my boyfriend. That wasn't the truth. My girlfriend, yeah. My boyfriend. <laughs> i got to tell you all something, actually. Uh, so anyway, I immediately thought she wanted to be my girlfriend at the time. And I was going to be her boyfriend. It had already written out in my head. And come to find out, she wasn't flirting with me. She was just, you know, she really liked the song. And the reason is, is because everybody needs to remember that God uses real, normal human beings, and he's still working on us. He's still working on us. We're all a work in progress. And hey, listen, it's okay to be a work in progress. It's okay to be a work in progress. Now listen, we should pursue the higher things. We should, we should pursue the higher. We should never, never settle. Paul says, even though I'm not perfect, I still press towards perfection. That's my ultimate goal. But we are all works in progress. God deals with actual people. 
And the second thing I learned is God often uses messy parts of our life to fulfill his plan. He often uses messy parts of our life to fulfill his plan. He used a prostitute who hid spies to fulfill part of his plan. He used an unclean person from an Moabitess, Ruth, to fulfill his plan. He used the messy parts of David's life to fulfill his plan. Solomon, one of the greatest kings, was born from an adulterous relationship. Still, I mean, even though the baby that, the first baby died, we know that from history, Solomon was born from Uriah's wife, an adulterous relationship. He uses the messy parts of our lives to fulfill his plan. Now, of course, we, I, I have all these disclaimers. Paul says, should I go on sinning that the grace of God may abound? May it never be, right? No, we should not go on making, look, God, I'm just making more of your plan awesome just by screwing up down here, though. That's not what we should do. It's not how we should do it. But he can use those messy parts of our lives. He can use our screw-ups. He can use those messy parts of our lives to make something happen to fulfill his plan. The genealogy, another thing, genealogy, genealogy shows us that God has a timeline that isn't ours. God has a timeline that isn't ours. Listen, it was over 2,000 years between Abraham and the birth of Jesus. God has a timeline that isn't ours. God promised Abraham, look, your lineage is going to be huge. Hey, we're here. We're standing here. I believe it. We're standing here because we're a part of that. Okay? It was the Jewish people first, but also it was all the people of God everywhere through Jesus. But you're going to have to wait a couple thousand years, bro. God doesn't always work on our timeline. His timeline is, our, is not ours. And the most important thing for me, and it might not resonate with you, but it needs to if it needs to. The genealogy shows us that we don't need to be so quick to write people off. Don't need to be so quick to write people off. Friends, you need to hear this. You need to hear this. If the spies had written off a Canaanite prostitute, where would they have been? If a Moabitess had been written off, where would they have been? Friends, there are a lot of people, because of your personality, because of the way you are, because you have trust issues, because of, because of the life you've led, or because you've been hurt in the past a lot, you write people off just like that. I'm with you. I'm with you. I've always told people, look, I trust you. I trust you 100%. You, <laughs> you messed me over big enough one time, I'm done. I'm done. I'm with you. I'm always, I'm always fighting writing people off. The genealogy of Jesus shows us a few things. I think one of the most important is this. The grace of God who uses messy people who other people don't expect to be used is the same grace of God that keeps hoping for people we might not find a lot of hope in. Who keeps pursuing people who might not be worthy of pursuit. And I've said this before and I'll say it again. Ultimately, when we write people off, what are we doing? We're saying, I'm God. I'm God. That's what we're doing when we write people off. We're saying, I'm 
the chosen one. I'm the one who chooses who's worthy of grace. I'm the one who chooses who's worthy of forgiveness. I'm the one who chooses who's worthy of hope. If I give it to you, you get it. If I don't, you don't. Therefore, practically, we're saying we are God. Friends, this Christmas season, if we want to show Christmas cheer, if we want to show good tidings of great joy, I think the best thing we can do is start giving people the benefit of the doubt. Hold out as long as we can. Never give up until we're sure that the relationship that we have with them is dangerous or hurting us. Not just like hurting our feelings, but hurting us. And trust in the Lord to have all of these things come to fruition in our own lives. Will you pray with me today? Lord, you are so good. And I'm such a mess. And yet you use me. And I can't understand why. Except for your grace and your mindset and your willingness to show mercy is greater than I could ever fathom. God, would you help us to be people of grace? Would you help us to expect big things out of people, but give them time to operate? Would you help us to be kind and forgiving to ourselves while still pursuing the holy and higher things? Lord, in this Christmas season, would you scoop out and take out any vision other than the vision of Christ? and his gospel, and how it impacts the world. We love you. We give you today, and we give you every day. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.